Welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about working in Hollywood from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I'm a former assistant director and your host. Today, we're going to discuss the Oscar nominees in the category of visual effects. Returning to the show is Kent Secchi, who joined us last week for our animated feature episode. Kent, welcome back. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Kent, glad you're here. As I mentioned last week, you've been working in Hollywood for almost 20 years. Your credits of the last decade are exclusively animated films, but you started your career doing live action visual effects. Talk with me about the connection between those mediums. So what's interesting about animation and visual effects is a lot of the tools are the same. You, and right now in modern visual effects, there's a lot of 3D being used. So Maya, Houdini, these are very common applications. There's compositing in both, there's, which uses the foundry's nuke and a lot of these places are After Effects or some equivalent compositor. So you have the same processes of creating an element or an object or a creature in 3D. But the difference is in live action, you've got this whole other component of integration where you've shot something or you're matching to a plate. So where you have to do things like camera tracking or what they call match moving, where you're basically re-synthesizing the camera move and the movement of the actors and trying to put them in, put the element in the scene or extend a set of make the scope larger because of limitations and financial problems or not problems, but financial limitations they have on the day of the shoot that they can't afford to have certain things that they know they can get later for cheaper in post. So when you hear, we'll fix it in post, a lot of that is visual effects, doing things like taking out a, a rig removal or things like that that happen. So uh, there's, a, there's a partnership between the visual effects side and the practical side that happens in a, in a live action visual effects movie that doesn't happen in an animated film. So, but there is a lot of crossover in the skills and techniques between the two. Also, there's an emphasis, of course, in visual effects on realism, where like photorealism, whether it's in the animation, the performance of a character, or even the element itself has to look like it was there the day they shot the, the, uh, the plate, or it has to actually cut with what was already shot in order to be seamless so it doesn't take the viewer out of the film. So with that in mind, that there's a lot of shared tools would be fair to describe your career path then as a natural progression, or was there some leap from the, the live action visual effects to the animated visual effects? So nowadays, there's actually quite a bit of switching back and forth between the two parts of the industry. But when I was when I got in, it was actually a little bit of a new thing. I think um, it, it, it's so funny. They are very related, but at the same time, they are different. And so I think there's a little bit of skepticism, healthy skepticism on both sides. So it's funny to come from one to the other and see it sort of manifest itself on both sides of, of, of the aisle, so to speak. But um, it is more common now. And I think it's with the way that tools are integrating and that there's uh, now there's more crossover between the actual production talent also as well, the upper level talent, that I think that that's causing a lot of interest between the two uh, sides at each other. So it's, it's, it's been a good transition for me, for sure. That makes sense, Kent. So before we turn our attention to the movies, let's also take a few minutes to review the difference between special effects and visual effects for our audience. So it's often that the two are used interchangeably, but really they are different on a set. And for your audience that already makes movies, they know this. Special effects happens the day of the shoot. So anything like there's pyro, which is an explosion, fire, smoke, or dust that has to be rain that has to be generated on the day of, of, this, of the shoot. That's all special effects that happens with a special effects coordinator who's an expert in real things. Visual effects happens after. So for a, a, a visual effect to be successful, oftentimes you need to have the marriage of the two things. Someone has to do something on the day of the shoot, as well as after you have to augment or fix or add to it 
in the end in, in post, even if you take out an effect after having it in there is super important for the visual effects team. So they have a reference point of like what was done on, on the day of the shoot. And also there's creature effects, which are a special effect. Like if like people are very familiar with any kind of monster suit or an animatronic that happens on the day of the shoot, sometimes like that will be augmented with visual effects. So a lot of these movies that we're gonna talk about use both special effects and visual effects together. And Kate, you made me aware that usually when they're nominating folks in these category, one of them is the special effects supervisor from the set shoot. Yes, it's often a tradition in the uh, in the Academy that one of the four names, or generally four names that are nominated uh, for each movie, one of them represents a practical side, whether it's a creature effect or a special effects uh, a coordinator or supervisor. Um, and it's super important because that aspect of the industry is a, a difficult skill and it's also a safety skill that like people don't realize sometimes as, as movie sets can be very very dangerous and the the coordination of that special effect is super important and if you've ever seen on been on set and seen a real explosion it's super impressive and amazing that they can control it the way they do well on to the nominees and a warning for listeners there could be spoilers first up love and monsters the nominated team is matt sloan genevieve camilleri Matt Everett and Brian Cox. So the movie is about sort of this almost post-apocalyptic event happens that mutates ordinary creatures into these giant uh, life-threatening monsters. And the human race has had been decimated and the few survivors have now gone underground or into sort of silos and bunkers. And it's about a teenage or, j or just after teenage uh, a young man or boy that's in love with this girl and decides to go on like an 80 mile trek to reunite after eight years of being underground with his girl and he has to traverse this very dangerous landscape and 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 he is not the most well equipped to deal with uh monsters and he has to find a way to get to her like that's the basic sort of through line of, this, of the story and and the main thing that ha that the visual effects supplies for this are the monsters themselves the mutated creatures as well as the ravaged earth uh, landscape that he has to travel through. So um, it's a classic visual effects problem in the sense that you have these live action actors who are now walking through and fighting and moting and, 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 you know, and going up against these giant monsters that are now uh, on the landscape itself and threatening. And at the same time, there is a charm to these monsters, which I think if I were to ask the audience to sort of look at it again, like, you know, when you design a creature, it can be menacing and fierce, but it can also be somewhat disarming and charming. And I think that this film does a great job of making a creature look realistic and evocative of something that you've seen before, like a giant snail or a frog. But at the same time, while it's menacing, it has a bit of charm to it. Like the creatures aren't exactly like alien. And there's some emotional, you know, almost humor to it. So when we talked in the beginning of the podcast about how the animate, you know, the style of animation versus style of live action visual effects, this one sort of rides in sort of the, from a design perspective in the middle, right? They feel real, but they look like they're, they have a little bit of personality to them. So they had the anthropomorphize them quite a bit. And I would say, pay attention to that. Like the first one that really comes to mind is the, is this giant rock snail. So the giant rock snail is, is supposed to be a friendlier monster, right? And so it has these qualities in its eyes and it's the way it moves that it's, it feels like it's non-threatening. But at the same time, it feels realistic. If you look at the way that the shaders work on the skin of that snail, like there's a translucency and there's what we call subsurface scattering where the light gets diffracted throughout that creature's skin. And you really feel that, that quality of, 
of, of that skin and the texture on that and the surfacing is, is feels very realistic. So it's the marriage right there of some stylization, but yet photorealism that going on there that's really impressive uh, in, in the film. Like in the number of creatures is fascinating. And they, they did a, a lot of things in the movie where they, they used some practical element to like disturb the ground so that that would be there for the visual effects artists to place the CG creature later. Um, and the actors, uh, it's super challenging for an actor to act against nothing. Like, and that's something that I think is really interesting to me from a from just a craft perspective is trying to provide the actor with some basis of reference so they can know one, where to look for the eyeline, like how big is the creature and two, you know, how to feel about seeing that creature, you know, in person. It also is a challenge for the DP who has to frame for something that's not there. They have to plan for a giant monster that's not, you know, in frame. So, you know, knowing the composition is going to be correct that you can actually put the monster there is super challenging as well. So it's really an interesting conundrum of as far as like putting these creatures in. If you want to pay attention as far as like the marriage of special effects and visual effects, look at the robot character of Mavis. Mavis was a puppet animatronic that they did on the day of so that, you know, that somebody built that creature, which is always fascinating when someone builds something. I'm always super impressed as somebody who works only in computer things. Like when <laughs> someone actually builds something and it actually works, it's super impressive to me. So they had, they built this puppet and they and visual effects had to like take out the human that was you know engineering the puppet and the rods and all the things there and then they took the hand and they replaced it with a cg version of the hand because they wanted more emotive quality with the hands and so if you want to look it's one of the things in animation you learn it's like the hands the gesture of the hands is super can be a very big storytelling point and so if you look at mavis's hand it's super articulated they they had a, they would have a very difficult time getting it to articulate as well in real life to build like basically a robot hand to do the thing. So like, it the, that's a good example where even the face which has the screen on it was I think replaced with uh, a CG version so they could get more uh, emotion out of the flat LED screen that's on the face there. And it takes place inside a great scene, uh, inside this motel where they, they have these jellyfish and the jellyfish are beautiful at night and they're, they're bioluminescent and they're floating up. And it's the set, there's two Stand By Me references in there. So like in the movie, so she could see it for that. They actually play Stand By Me in that sequence, but there's also another one to, in which the leeches get on top of the, the monster leeches on the main character and it reminded me. So obviously that filmmaker watched Stand By Me. Another interesting thing about that film is it was shot in 40 days, which if you know anything about shooting, that's a, an aggressive shoot, a 40 day shoot in Queensland, Australia. Wow. Uh, and I think, that is impressive. Like when you think about like all of that stuff, because visual effects makes, as everyone who's been on a crew knows, everything take longer, right? You have to take photographs, you have to do all the documentation, you get camera measurements, like all those little micro steps, and the gray ball pass, the chrome ball pass, just make it take longer. So the fact they did it in 40 days is really, really impressive. Ken, I think worth noting here that this is not a movie where the monsters show up in the final reel. It's throughout the film. Like the monsters yeah. are heavily integrated throughout the story. To the movie's credit, the monsters don't overwhelm the story, I think, at any point. They're an, an active and important aspect of it, but very prominent throughout. The visual effects had a lot of work to do here. Yeah. I mean, Pretty much it's, it's, all the scenes through the shoot. Yeah. And then if you think about this, every time they're in a location in which is overgrown or like 
done in by the monsters. Like all of that was all done in post in visual effects. Like they basically created a CG matte painting or a digimat of the whole thing in 3D and replaced whatever was there and extended it way beyond what they actually shot on the day of the shoot. So like it's an impressive film in terms of the number of work, uh, the amount of work that's done. And uh, I think it was done by Mr. X, which is uh, I think Canadian studio, that's a visual effects studio. So that was their main vendor. And the other thing about all visual effects nowadays, which is a shift over time is that now most shows have multiple vendors. Like it used to be you would hire just one to do your visual effects and that's it, like an ILM or digital domain or whatever, and that they handled all of it. Nowadays, like it's not surprising to see like 15 names, 15 company names at the end of a, of a movie and like they all did something, which means it's a huge logistical thing that you're sort of keeping tabs on all these different vendors and you have to keep everything looking the same as if it was done by one vendor or at least it's all in one show, so. Well, this movie's got a lot going for it in this space. Again, it's, it's uh, I know it's our first one up, but uh, an impressive, uh, an impressive uh, visual effects resume. Uh, right, and it also, it also features Michael Rooker. So you got to give it that too. So like, <laughs> big fan of Michael Rooker. The next film on our list uh, is the Netflix movie, The Midnight Sky. The team is Matthew Kazmier, Christopher Lawrence, Max Solomon, and David Watkins. So this is an impressive film on a lot of levels and you can almost break it up into two parts, right? Because the story is two parts. You have the story that's going on on Earth, which is another cataclysmic event has taken place, which they don't explain what it was. You don't really need it. And I think the whole point is you don't know, it doesn't matter, right? This event has happened and George Clooney's stranded in the Arctic in this station. And then he has to go on this journey to save or prevent this spaceship that's coming back to earth from coming to earth because they're the only hope for humanity's survival lives on that spaceship. And so that there's that aspect on the, on the earth itself. Then there's also the spaceship shots that are happening um, that has another visual effects aspect. So let's sort of break that up into two components, right? So let's, let's first talk about the stuff in the Arctic. So in that one, in that one, they built this set of the, uh, of the, of the Arctic. Uh, so the they built this Arctic station, the research, the research station, station. That's correct. And one of the big aspects of that is these giant bay windows in which they see, they're constantly reminded of the tundra that's outside that station. That was all done with LED screens outside of the practical set. So the LED screens were out there and they, they projected into the LED screens a version of the Arctic. Sometimes it was, a most of the time it was a combination of plate photography plus CG augmentation that was done before they shot the practical onset stuff. And so that was done by ILM Stagecraft. Um, they're famous right now and they're really hot right now for the stuff they did on the Mandalorian. And that's basically game changing brand new technology on the Mandalorian. The first time I had heard of someone doing this I think uh, was on the Tom Cruise film, Oblivion, I'm sorry. Yes, Oblivion, they did it on for, this, for, the, uh, for the high station, sky station stuff. The whole, all the sky was projected in. And what that does is that allows you not to have a green screen out in the back of it. It also allows you to use the LED to light the actors and light the set. So you have this light source coming in that already has all the values, all the chroma, all the hue of what's going on out there. It makes the integration so much better. And again, your actors see what's supposed to be out there. And that makes such a big difference. They don't have to use their imagination. It's right there. You don't have to deal with bad pulling keys, like it's one of the last vestiges of old technology is the green screen. The green screen's existed, the chroma key has existed for a long time. It's always, always tricky. You have to, like the rule is like 15 to 20 feet away from any bit of the set, but it's always hard to get by that 15 to 20 feet. There's almost always some spill of green back in that you have to remove. And once you start removing the spill, which is you have to do, you're removing color, which causes all kinds of other issues. So the integration becomes that much more hard with the green screen pull. So 
this technology, which is kind of a reformation of, re of rear screen projection, which is again, another old technology, but it's an update of that. And it's, and, and it's, it's just one of those really interesting things that's happening right now. And there's also, they're pairing it with other technologies like real-time camera tracking to like get the, the parallax right on the background. So they, they, they can move the, the background up and down based on where the camera is so that you get true perspective. So that's, those are the little things that tell an audience that something's not right is when the perspective doesn't change with the camera angle and then it becomes looks like a fake backdrop. So that is one aspect of what's happening on the ground. Uh, when he goes off on his journey, there's this moment where the, he gets sucked into the into the Arctic ice cold water, and there's a sinking uh, another substation that's sinking, a resource station sinking. That was done with a six-axis gimbal. I think several different six-axis gimbals. This is a, where the special effects is so important: is that they had to be able to rotate this stage element and have it fall into the water and repeat that over and over again, and not and have it be something that is broken and, and dangerous. So like somebody had to construct this giant set and, and set piece in order for it to do that. So they did that for, and it's underwater also. So it just complicates things so much to be able to do that. And they did all of that work on a specially constructed stage with, with 360 degrees of gels, which had lights projected on them that were tied into what the plates were gonna look like. So doing a shooing the green screen again with this uh, big gelled set so that would give the lighting uh, onto the actors and make the backgrounds easier to do the integration. They still replaced a lot of that background with a CG element, but it became a lot easier with the background lighting be looking right so that they had the key light in the right place. So if they came by and panned over and saw the key light coming in on George Clooney, they could replace that with the diffused sunlight that's coming slowly coming through the clouds. So there's a lot of technology going on there, which is hard, it's, it's, you don't really see, which is, I guess that's the biggest compliment you can pay to visual effects is you don't realize it's happening. And we transition over to what's happening in space. One thing that most people don't realize is Felicity Jones was pregnant during the shoot, like very pregnant and could not do any of the zero G stuff that was happening in space with her character. And so ILM did a performance capture on her face for all the scenes in which they put her in a volume with cameras all around and she emoted the scenes and acted all the things that she was supposed to do. And they put her face onto a double who was actually doing all the zero G stuff and also sometimes a full CG double at that. And so that was uh, the wow. use of a technology that nobody knows. Like when you watch the movie, I had no idea that was, was, I had read that she was pregnant, but then when I saw some of the behind the scenes, like she was really pregnant and it was a safety issue as well because traveling was restricted during the COVID times. So it was really, really a tough visual effect that I think they pulled off seamlessly. So that's super interesting. Frame store did all the space stuff and I, they used all the techniques, I think, in terms of their full CG, zero G environment and character stuff that they did on gravity. And they applied that to this film. And there's a combination of things that are happening there. So with, with the CG, with the, with the performance capture that ILM did, they were so successful with Felicity Jones, they applied it to the other actors for all the zero G scenes in which they had to have full CG digi doubles. And so one of the hardest things to do in visual effects is a, is a completely CG human. Like, uh, we talked about this sort of in the animation section of, of your podcast, but like to get it where the audience buys it and doesn't think a CG is super, super hard. Your brain is trained to know when something's not real. It's, and, and, and they did a great job with that aspect of the film. So Felicity Jones body with a camera for with a projected a replaced head and they had to get the eye lines right. So there's all these tracking things they had to do to try to get everything to line up. And it's 
it's really, really impressive stuff that they did there. That, uh, an interesting use of many multiple different kinds of technology on top of the traditional CG stuff, like there's the meteor shower, there's the destroyed earth from a long way away. Uh, you know, there's a, a few long takes in there where it's full, there were like they had to extend the set beyond what it was and then augment it or do a handoff between the what was shot on set and then onto like a full CG version of it. So there's a lot of stuff that's going on behind the scenes in that film that are really impressive to me. Now, when you said that they were using some of the same techniques as gravity, did you just mean the techniques or this company actually did gravity as well? Framestore did gravity as well, which they won the Oscar for, for on gravity, which is really, again, another impressive, you know, film. And, and we, we can talk, we talk another podcast just about gravity alone, <laughs> about how impressive that movie was. Every year of this movies, when the movies come out, I always think, oh, what movie do I wish I worked on that I didn't work on? And that was like one of that was the movie where I'm like, wow, that the things they did there were just amazing. And you sort of a tip of the hat to frame store. They really took it up a notch with that film. And I think this film is interesting because they, they blend a bunch of techniques into it. So it's like it's a great use of all these different kinds of techniques into one film. And I think it was a super, you know, when the more I read about that film, the more challenging it was. And, you know, you, this is the great thing about visual effects when you don't know about it until after you read it, then you're like, then you become even more impressed with what they had to overcome to achieve uh, what they did in that film. It is interesting. I didn't know anything about the um, face replacement and sort of the body work they had done yeah. there. I do wonder if the fact that a lot of the space stuff really was groundbreaking in gravity, if people won't give them as much credit for doing it again. But at the same time, I think the scene you mentioned, the underwater scene in the Arctic is really a signature piece as far oh, yeah. as how those elements come together. And it's beautiful to look at. It doesn't feel fake in any way. And as you said, all these different elements combining there to make it work. That's This is a tough one to sort of um, handicap. Yeah, I think that this, just like what you're saying, this is a category that's wide open right now. Like, I don't know if there's a favorite going into this one or not. I, I certainly, this one could, could be, any one of these could take it. And any one of these is rightfully, has a rightful claim to the mantle of it because of what they had overcome to make the movie. And most of these movies were done during COVID in some way. Like they weren't finished before. There was some COVID aspect of it. That, that affected them in some way, shape or form. And, and I, I, I think that this one with the Felicity Jones, you know, performance capture using the, I think I Lamb called Anima performance capture is really impressive. Like, it's just one of those things where you're like, oh my God, I did not know that was what's going on. And she's connecting with the boyfriend he has on the ship. And it's just like, there's just amazing things that are going, when you think about how difficult it is to do any of that stuff as an actor alone, you know, even if you're in a set with a person, now you're not there. Like it's also a testament to Felicity Jones's acting skills that she could do that stuff and and pull it off and and, and not worry about like, oh no, this is gonna and the confidence she had in the process to like give give herself to that thing. And I, and I think that's another thing that's not really discussed in terms of performance capture and visual effects is it's risky for an actor. Like it's really hard to do the job of being an actor, period, right? But now you're saying, well, don't worry it's going to look great when we finish putting you on somebody else's body or when we put you on a CG per a person and you're like, but I'm the one who gets critiqued for my performance. Right. Like, <laughs> like, so like, that's, that's really, it's, I, 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 you know, when the more I think about like the way that visual effects has to work with all the other departments in a feature film and a live action film, it's, it's something that you're asking everyone to take a leap of faith. And I think that is an example of a perfect example of a leap of faith by the actor that pays off. Third movie on our list is Mulan. The team is Sean Faden, Anders Langlands, Seth Mari, and Steve Ingram. So 
Mulan is a the live action remake of the Disney animated classic Mulan. Very controversial in the world of animation to do these live action remakes. We're not going to talk about that part of it yet. <laughs> so that could be a topic for another podcast. <laughs> but um, uh, this film is an, a, like it really is a kind of a throwback in the way of like a swords and sandals epic, right? Like that kind of movie. Like there's big battles with large armies. It's centered around the story of this one young girl and her journey and, you know, her hero's journey. It literally is her hero's journey that we're following uh, in China. Every battle scene, every time you see hundreds of riders, they probably had, I think I read 60 to 80. So it's impressive because you forget how hard, you know, how seamless it is. Like it's just, oh, they've got hundreds of people riding horseback and that's what they got right there. And they shot it all there in China. Like none of the main actors actually shot in China. This was all shot in New Zealand. And so they changed it to look like China and they had very specific reference of what they wanted to look like in China. So that's right there in alone again is one of the impressive things about the movie is you feel like it's shot in China, but it's not. And so they, they, did, they did some photography there, but not with the main actors. That was something that, that, I, that I found out. Also, there's wow. many shots of Mulan riding a horse, which I did not realize. She's not actually riding a horse. They shot the actress who was playing Mulan on what they call a buck. And it's like a mechanical horse, a mechanical. And they, so they could do all these camera moves on it and it's safer. It's, it's a big safety. She's going riding really fast. I did not realize that was a full CG horse. So a lot of the times that you see her riding the horse, it's actually a CG horse with an actor comped in or composited in on top of that. So right there is, an, is one, to create the horse that's photoreal. Two, to composite the one that was, the, the actress that was shot in on stage on a green screen onto the horse and have it be seamless. So like that's impressive right there in itself. In terms of fantastical things, there's, the, there's a witch character in that movie that transforms several times. So all those transformations are obviously a visual effect that she turns into several birds and then she comes back together. She reconstitutes herself. She turns into some kind of mist. There's all these things that she does. She has these flowing uh, sleeves that have anthropomorphic or qualities where she can wrap things around people and, and use them almost as appendages to like toss them around. Like that stuff was all done as CG extensions of her actual uh, sleeves. Yeah. There's a uh, Phoenix character a bird that's very stylized actually when you see it it almost feels like it's a paper bird like so that's a very but it feels integrated into the world that it's flying in and it has a magical quality to it so so there's a combination of things going on there tons of set extensions so every time they go into a garrison or a fort it's actually one set that they've repurposed for every single one of the garrisons they built one partial set of the garrison and then they made it look like a different garrison for each of the other ones by either augmenting it with cg or by changing the set around and dressing it differently on the day of the shoot for each particular garrison set so there's a lot of things happening there also another thing that's impressive about this and this is something people don't think about is nikki caro this is her first visual effects driven film and that's a big deal like when you think about that like when you look at making a film like this it's super complicated. You have a lot of things you're juggling. It's hard enough to direct a movie, period, right? When you're just talking about making a film, that endeavor where you're, where you're marshalling an entire crew and you're working with actors and trying to get the, the story right. And you have a giant studio behind you who's like second guessing all of your decisions. Now you add on top of that, this element, this unknown new element of visual effects where you're like, you have to take again, a leap of faith that it's all gonna look great at the end. And it certainly has on this one, it's a testament 
to the visual effects team that I, whenever you're working with a first timer in terms of visual effects, I'm always impressed with this level of quality achieved because that means that you were able to bring that director al along with it for the journey, right? So there's so many times for all of, all of the listeners who actually work on movies, like there's almost always a conflict between visual effects and everybody else. It's, it's just the way it kind of works, right? Because everybody else on the day of the shoot, they're trying to get through the day. They're, they have their job to go. They're trying to time out how long it's going to take to do our things. And then you have visual effects coming in saying, wait a second, we need this information. We need to do this. We need to shoot it this way. And you're basically the department that's sort of getting in everybody's way of sort of like, well, you can't use that color for the costume because that'll get rid of the way of the green screen and cause problems. And it's the nature of, of that job. It's also the only job that's not in the union. So like there's all these other things that are going on behind the scenes that make it super challenging. And so to see this come out this, at this level, all those pressures at this scope is really, really impressive. One of the aspects that you talked about where they would um, uh, extend some of those city scenes or the garrisons to be larger than they are, it reminds me of a conversation we had a couple of episodes ago with the production design team, where actually one of them commented that on some of the movies that we were reviewing in that category, they specifically uh, noted on Mank and also on uh, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, that they actually were not happy with some of these larger shots, that they felt that it was being overused as a technique to show you know, all of Chicago in a way that wasn't really necessary for the film. And I'm curious from the visual effects perspective, what's your thought about the amount of visual effects that are making their ways into movies, maybe not integral to the storyline? I think it's always a dilemma. As things have shifted toward a more visual effects heavy workflow, other people who are creative supervisors, creative heads are being left out. And that creates even more tension, right? Because ultimately, Everyone has a responsibility in the movie, right? The production designer is responsible for the look of every single thing in that movie, right? And if the visual effects team is adding things that the production designer hasn't intended, well, that's wrong. I mean, that's something that should, they should include that person, right? It, it's wrong from a hierarchy standpoint. It's wrong from a respect standpoint. Like, and, and I don't mean the visual effects people are bad people. I just mean that what happens is that we haven't changed the process enough to the, include their input in order to make the right decision, right? So, or the same thing can happen with the DP where you're extending sets, you're changing lighting. And sometimes the DP isn't even aware of these things until they get into the DI process. And then they see something they're like, well, wait a minute, that wasn't my intention at all. And so then they have to try to repair or to come back or work with what they're given from the VFX studio or the VFX vendor. And so there's a potential, there's always potential for this, for this problem to exist. And I think, the shows that I've been on that handle this the best are the ones that are the most collaborative, where there's sort of this idea that we're gonna go in this together. There'll be times where we're gonna to have to do things in visual effects that maybe weren't planned for. And what's the most respectful way to do those things and include the people that we need to include in order to like get the film to be the best film possible. And I think there's always mission creep. That's the thing is, as you shift more things into the post-production process, there's a tendency to wanna to do more things. like. If you can keep revising something, generally you want to keep revising it. Like it's like a paper. Like when you write a paper, you want to keep revising that paper, <laughs> right. right? And at some point you've gone past the point of like making it better, right? And you've gone over like it's turned, right? And so I think it's a, I think it's 
maybe not always a problem, but it's a potential problem. And when I, it, it's always disheartening when you hear somebody from a show talk about how they didn't like how something came out that they had no say over it. Cause then you feel like you didn't, as somebody who worked on the visual effects, let's say, you feel like you disrespected that person or you didn't include them. And, and I think that that ultimately is a shame. Like you want it to be a collaborative process. And obviously nothing's perfect. So you're just doing the best you can. But the short answer to your question is yes, I think it can be a problem. And when I hear it, when I hear about things like that, yeah, it sort of it bums me out. And I have seen films where I'm like, oh, look at that gratuitous shot, you know. And I don't, I think the films that we're talking about here don't necessarily don't represent that, in my opinion. I think that there's like they all sort of do a good judicious job. And sometimes it's a budget constraint too; like they can't, right? But sometimes when you have no restraints, no constraints on the budget, no, no, then you end up doing kind of crazy things that maybe you never want to take your viewer out. Like that's a cardinal sin to me is taking your viewer out of the movie. So if it does, then there's a problem. And, it, and I think it's a, a big difference between a film like Mulan where the epic and grand scale of these different sets and the backgrounds and the number of people and all of these things, it's actually only going to be well achieved in visual effects. Right. So like the Visual Effects Society, which is the most the, the closest to like a union on the Visual Effects side, is like they have their own awards. Just every guild or every union has their own awards before the Oscars happen. And they have a category for best visual effects in a non-visual effects driven film. Right. So like this the idea of that seamless visual effect that happens in a film that's like not Mulan. Like it's not one not any of these films that we're talking about here, which are all heavy visual effects films, you know, like like where it's an impressive use of that visual effect, or maybe it's a little more judicious, you know, and it's just something that sort of happens in the film itself. And it's not a, a major character sort of a player, major player in the film and the storytelling. The next film on our list is The One and Only Ivan. The nominated team is Nick Davis, Greg Fisher, Ben Jones, and Santiago Colomo Martinez. So The One and Only Ivan is a film from Disney that's about, it's based on a true story, which is a, a about a, a gorilla, about a sort of, a, it's like almost like a carnival show that happens at a mall of all things. And it has white, real wild animals and their desire to be free. And it's told from the perspective of the animals. So the animals actually talk to each other. They're photoreal, but they don't talk to the humans. The challenge here, your main characters who talk to each other are actually CG animals. And so that goes in the long tradition of CG animal films. So we can go back to like Babe, CG talking, or actually those are real animals with, you know, augmentation that won the Oscar the year that that babe came out. We're talking about Life of Pi, not talking animal, but the, the, the tiger was all CG in Life of Pi. All of the Planet of the Apes movies, which incidentally, which interestingly enough, none of them won the, uh, the Oscar, even though they had super, super, each one of those films impressive and impressed and like built upon each other. King Kong, which did win visual effects, not talking again. But then you go to Jungle Book, Lion King, all talking animals in CG, very impressive. And the thing about this film that sets it apart maybe from like, let's say the Lion King or the Jungle Book, which are also amazing, is the fact that they're shooting that movie with a live action plate and intercutting it with CG versions of the same set with the animals in it. So you're literally going from, here's a shot with the actor in it, you know, in the set to pan over and, or, or cut and then there's there's Ivan the gorilla in the same habitat but fully CG and it cuts seamlessly. Like I, I didn't realize how much full CG environment work was done. So they basically shot the plate photography and also had to make sure that the CG version matched exactly. Wow. So this highlights wow. the difference again between animated films and live action. That this component adds a huge 
element of complexity and a huge challenge or opportunity for the visual effects team to really step up their game. And so that's what's one of the most impressive things something you don't realize is a lot of the shots are full CG shots, like the whole environment. Like they didn't just shoot a plate and just put Ivan into the shot. And they used a variety of techniques to create Ivan. They used some performance capture where they actually had the guy in the suit with witness cameras that like would track with dots, you know, their movement. And then they would augment that with real animation, with actual animation. So most of the time with this performance capture, there's a ton of work that happens after with an animation team to, to craft the performance and to like put that on there. So that it becomes great, either a great reference or just starting point for the animation team. They have to clean up all of the motion capture and really craft this sort of performance that uses the actor as a basis for it. So they have that, they have some shots that are just full CG, a full CG creature with no performance capture. They have witness camera footage, which is just reference footage. So there's a ton of different techniques they use to create the animals here. And one of the things that I would point out is that one of the hardest things to do with a CG animal is make it talk convincingly because animals by nature don't talk, right? So they don't actually have the muscle structure to formulate words. So you're talking about very complicated, you know, mouth movements to like make it seem like they're actually saying the words they're saying, you know? So, you know, you have dogs, you have gorillas, you've got elephants, all, all these different kinds of animals that are talking to each other. And I have to say, after a couple of minutes, you know, when your brain might at first be like, well, they're talking animals, but you don't think about it. Like it just becomes part of the movie. And that's an impressive part of this movie is how quickly the animals are just part of the movie. They just are, you just take it for granted. There's a gorilla that talks, you know, that's fine. You know, and it's a, it's right there. It's that's a talking gorilla that just talks to his friends. And I think that's, that's a really impressive thing about that, about the film in terms of, of like getting a character to actually act and be convincing it's hard enough for a human. Like it's just hard enough to act period. Like acting, I talk about this a lot, how hard it is, but now you take that and now you hand that over that the responsibility to a bunch of animators who are dependent on a lot of things, like depending on the actual model that gets created of the character. You're dependent on the rig, which is the way that the animator can move the characters. Somebody actually puts bones inside the character and then says, when you move this bone, this shoulder moves this percentage. And when you do when you do this, you not just move the elbow, you create a muscle. And there are all these things that have to get created in order to create a convincing performance. And the face is even more complicated for thinking of all the muscles in the face, the eye movements on the face. And then you're also trying to tie that into the actor's performance, whether it's it's like Danny DeVito's performance or or Sam Sam Rockwell's performance. These are great actors, right? So they probably shot them when they were doing their, their, the voiceover to try to, you know, see what they were doing with their face and how they were saying their words and trying to integrate that also into the performance and crafting that. On top of that, if you're gonna shoot on a set and then you're gonna do CG shots, the camera work has to be consistent, right? So if you're shooting with, with on sticks or with wheels, say you're shooting with wheels, using that technique of using wheels to move a crane up and down and move it across using and panning it, you know, with a crew that's moving it, what they, you know, you have to make it feel the same way when you cut to the next shot, that's almost the same as in the CG environment. So what they did, they set up a virtual camera and a virtual stage to allow the DP to use his techniques to actually move the camera around. So that's why it feels so natural when you're cutting between these two things is they actually had the DP come in and talk about how he would shoot those scenes and then use the virtual camera, which basically means they had pre-recorded footage or they had pre-cached footage of the CG animal and they used the camera to react to that footage so that it would feel natural. 
And I think that's another thing that sort of helps the integration is the combining of the thing we just talked about in the last uh, last one with Mulan is you actually brought some of that crew in to like shoot the CG portion of it, even though it's full CG. So like it's that melding of techniques that makes the convincing film. Yeah, I think that's a, really a fascinating approach to the integration. Um, Ken, you mentioned the the Planet of the Apes movies. And I, I remember specifically, I think in the first of the new ones, where there were some scenes at the enclosure where the camera did things that were impossible. And just the camera shot moved around in a way that sort of took me out of it. But in reviewing my thoughts about the one and only Ivan, I never noticed anything like that. And it's certainly tempting, right? Or it's available if you're doing these completely uh, CG generated sets, but by holding back, it integrates very smoothly in this movie that really, honestly, that, that and that takes a lot of intention, I think, that, that, that you oh, don't yeah. notice at first. I, I think that's it's something that I come back to a lot, actually, even in animated films is restraint, is the idea of like, you hold your matches, you have to do what's appropriate for the moment. Right. And it's oftentimes super challenging to do that thing. Like, and it is holding back. I think that sometimes it is, it is the key to like making something feel real is holding back from doing the spectacular, right? Cause the spectacular, I remember at, when I was a visual effects artist, like I wanted to do the spectacular shot. I mean, that's sort of the thing you want to do say, I did, you know, that shot you really love. I did that shot. You know, you don't want to do like, Oh, here's a lock off. I did this lock off. <laughs> really, how, how cool was that? The lock off that I did like, but at the same time, like you're there to serve the movie, right? You're here to serve the story. And so it always comes back to that. And it's, I think if you, anyone knows anything about visual effects, like a lot of times the visual effects artist knows nothing about the story, right? For various reasons, they're a vendor. They don't get to see any screening in the movie. They don't even get to read the script. So to make an informed choice is super challenging, right? If you don't have the information. And I think that's one of the big challenges about visual effects. Like it's something that happens almost for granted when you're shooting something on location, right? Is if you're actually shooting the day of your onset with a crew, you're watching this thing happen and you're absorbing a lot of storytelling by being there, right? You're absorbing the acting, you're absorbing this process, but you're taking that and it creates magic. Like I think that, that being on set creates a bunch of magic. And, and that's why one reason why I have a lot of respect for actually shooting on the day of and what happens that day of and the spontaneity of filmmaking. With visual effects, you don't have any of that, right? And in fact, if anything, you're at a deficit. You, you, you have to almost imagine what that is, or you have to try and seek these pieces of information. And what I've noticed is really good visual effects supervisors know how to dole out that information because the director doesn't have time. I mean, the director's so busy. They don't have time to like go over every nuance with the, each vendor and, and then alone each animator and each artist that works on a movie. So I think it's very easy for it to not have that restraint because you don't know the story behind getting to that point, right? So it's super, I think it's one of the things I noticed when I worked in visual effects was trying to communicate the intention. Like what happened? How did we get here? The story of how we got to this shot that you're doing, that you artist, amazing visual effects artists are doing. Like what's the story of how we got to this place? And I think when you watch a movie like the one on Ivan, they did a great job of conveying that, or at least it appears to me like they did a great job of conveying that <laughs> because I think they did a nice job with all these things in the movie. The last movie on our list is Tenet. The nominated team is Andrew Jackson, David Lee, Andrew Lockley, and Scott Fisher. All right, so Tenet. Okay, Christopher Nolan, <laughs> epic, mind-bending movie with not time travel per se, even though it's time travel, but time manipulation in it. Like, it's a classic, you know, Christopher Nolan 
film like there's very few filmmakers like him that can make a film like this like and and it's ambitious and it's crazy and i know there's going to be a portion of the audience that says, well so what they just rolled a bunch of things backwards right like that's that's what they did right <laughs> and it's so much more complicated than that and i think the fact that it seems simple is again another testament to how good these guys are I mean, and as a filmmaker christopher nolan he's a force of nature right he is somebody who prefers to shoot on large format like imax with like optimal photochemical process with minimal digital intervention like that like that's you know christopher nolan right and so if you're a visual effects team you know he's going on and that basically means he wants to shoot it in camera if he can shoot it in camera that's what he's going to do but it's also one reason why a lot of his movies look amazing like and two of his movies have one best visual effects his uh, inception one best visual effects uh interstellar one best visual effects so this technique or his method of making movies gets a grand a grand result like and I, you know everyone's going to talk about the scene in which they crash a boeing 747 into an airplane hangar and it explodes and it's crazy and they actually bought a decommissioned 747 built a hangar set at an airport and towed it through a parking lot and into into a building and set off pyro and explosions and shot it from multiple angles and then augmented in cg with like like um I think there are light poles that get knocked down and a fence that gets knocked down. But even saying that sound diminishes it to like how impressive it was to do that. They, I think even have a funny line in the movie where like, well, it's not that. I don't know what he says. Like Robert Patton says something. Well, maybe a little bit, you know, like he says this great <laughs> line about it, which is I think totally true about the actual effect itself. So like you've got that aspect of practicality that's happening. But at the same time, you have these scenes in which you're melding going forward with going backward, right? And so like, there's a lot of planning that goes into that. Like, what does that look like? What would happen if you're manipulating time? They talk to a theoretical physicist about what that would look like, the effects of it, the residue of it. So would the event happen all at once? And then there would be little things like, when would the dust fall? When would the crack form? Do you separate out those events? And then you make choices that say, okay, this may be what would in physics happen, but here's what we want to do in the movie because that looks better, right? So you have a ton of decisions being made all throughout it, tons of locations being shot. The whole sailing scene, the, this incredible yacht racing scene, which if you're if anyone that worked on this movie, you're like, they shot a yacht racing scene practically. Like that's crazy. Like, so they, they have these catamarans that they made full CG sales for, like you don't even realize that. They did a ton of face replacement with the actors because it's super dangerous to, to go on a yacht traveling at that fast. You don't even, you don't realize that's happening. People fall in the water, like there's stunts, all of this is all happening in that scene. That's an, that's an amazing scene. The car chase, the car chase, the planning of the car chase. Think about this. You had to think about, okay, one, what's happening? Like, okay, so <laughs> yeah. this half the scene's going backwards, half the scene's going forwards. You throw a suitcase across the forward moving car that goes into the backward moving car and they, they you know, then they get it. What does that look like? Like just that alone is hard so they so you want have to plan out what does that what happens like just okay what how does this work so i can't even imagine what the script looks like on this thing and then you have to be a visual effects supervisor planning okay well we're going to do this practically we're going to do this you know on a green screen and then this will be full cg and then you have to make it look like it all happened at once on the day of like that is hard to do you've got these giant practically built quote turnstiles which is the time travel device that's a practical thing you have a fight between a forward moving guy and a backward moving guy. Think about that, you have to, and they interact, they actually have to touch each other. They're not just have to wrestling. 
where one is moving forward and one is moving backward. That is hard. That's not simple. It's not an easy thing to figure out how to do. Then you have the whole temporal pincer movement at the end in which you've got one army moving backwards, one army moving forward, meeting in the middle. You've got a building that's imploding and exploding at the same time where they shot a giant miniature. So here's the other thing, miniatures. I say the word miniature, people think the miniature is this big. Miniature is like the size of this room. Like that's how, <laughs> like, a miniature is not small. Like a miniature is smaller than real life. That's all they mean is it's not as big as a real thing. But in order for it to feel real, it has to be big enough so the physics feel big enough that when something explodes, the fire, the size of the fire flames and the way the the way it looks and the, it flows, like it has to be big enough that it has that weight, right? That it has the mass that you need for that practical thing to work. So there's a ton of things happening here. It's, it's a really impressive. And if you want to ask yourself this question, this is a movie where there's things in there you've never seen before. Like you really haven't seen a time manipulation in this manner before. So on some level, it has that going for it in the same way that Inception actually didn't have that many. So sometimes the thing that you look at is the number of shots that have visual effects in it. Like a, shot, a movie typically has 2000 shots in it. And you're like, okay, 2000 shots, how many of those have visual effects in it? And sometimes that's a, a metric you could use to say, well, this one has 1900 visual effects shots or 2000 visual effects shots. Or like the, the math is good on that one. This one may not have as many visual effects shots per se as some of the other films we have on the list, but neither did Inception. Inception had less. And I would argue that probably Interstellar had more because it's in space, but still even that had probably less visual effects shots than some of these other films. But the quality of that way that the visual effects was done, the way that there's something new here that hasn't been seen before in the way that Inception hadn't been seen before. Like, I think these movies have things in them. Chris Nolan knows how to create a visual epic that has something that you haven't seen before. That also, another factor you may wanna consider is it begs to be seen on a big screen because Christopher Nolan was championing going back to the movies, which I think is a great thing. He, you know, one of the things that I like about Chris Nolan is that he loves large format looking on a screen in the theater, which is you know, something that there's something to be said about the value of a film that begs to be seen in that format, that begs to be seen on a large screen. You know? And I think this is the kind of film that has that going for it and that you know, it's super impressive. The set pieces are really, really amazing and they're really fun to watch. and and uh, and you don't look at it and say it's fake. Like you look at it and like, oh yeah, they came out some way. I mean, you know, cause it's impossible that it's fake, but like, it's still, uh, I, I watched it and just like, when I, these scenes come up and just like, I'm, part of me is, the visual effects side of me is geeking out about how it's done and I want to know, but there's also another part that just wants to follow the story. And with Christopher Nolan, if you're not following the story, you're going to get lost pretty fast. So you have to sort of, you have these things kind of going on. So I'd like to go watch it for the experience of watching it, then go back and think watch it for like, the visual effects side of it and think about, well, how would I do that? Or how do I think they did that? Then try to corroborate that with the behind the scenes. I was able to see Tenet at the drive-in, which is not the same as to the IMAX screen that Christopher Nolan wants me to watch it in, but uh, sure. uh, it's, there's some trade-offs there with sitting in your car, but at least it's yeah. always closer to Nolan's vision, I think, than watching on TV. Oh yeah, definitely closer to the vision. But like, so, you know, what's great about this, I mean, every year they have a good variety of things. And I think this year is visual effects. There's a huge variety of types of visual effects, right? So it's going to be a hard choice, I think, for the for the Oscar voters to decide what they sort of believe in and what they wanna what they want to win. I mean, like, and there are years where there's huge upsets and they're like, oh, I didn't think that was gonna happen. I and and but even when there's upsets, I see why they won. I understand the choice. There are other years where you're like, 
wow, that, you know, the movie that you think is going to win, The Lord of the Rings, of course, that's going to win. And it wins, you know, wins best special effects. So like this year is one of those years where you, it can be any one of these movies. And I, and, and it would be justified. I think they could all lay claim to the mantle of best visual effects. To that point, Ken, I think it's an interesting, you're, you're right, that none of these movies has sort of awards momentum in general. It's not like there's a movie that got six to 10 awards. Those movies aren't in this category. Like yeah. these movies are largely representing their films at the Academy Awards in this category. Yeah, I think it's one of the one of the few years where there isn't like a multiple nominee, like like lots of nominee, like in sort of sitting in there, right? Where you're like, oh, oh, that it feels like like this like this is the one that has the most pr- critical praise as a film. So therefore, it has some weight. You could argue that maybe it has weight going into the awards, and I, you know, who knows on that. But this is an interesting year that I think it's a great point that you made. Like, it really is going to be on the merits of the visual effects of like how people, how voters feel about the role of that visual effect in the movie. Did it, did it enhance it? Did it, was it essential to the storytelling? And was it the thing that they, that will be the standout for the year? And I don't really know which one's gonna, which one it's gonna be, you know? And it was fun to watch all of them and to compare and to sort of see, oh yeah, they all have bring different techniques. It's also the year where like, there isn't a Marvel film. I don't think there's been a year without a Marvel film in a long time nominated for visual effects. So because of COVID, like Black Widow got pushed to this year, which is the big Marvel film for this year, which looks amazing. Like there's just, like I see the trailer and I like, it's bananas, you know, like, oh my God, look at all these crazy effects that are going on. You know, that's, a, that's the definition of a visual effects driven film is any right. Marvel movie, right? It's like, oh my gosh, it's crazy. So uh, it's a different kind of year, you know? And, and I think that it's COVID made its mark on this category and, and we'll have to see what happens. Were there other noteworthy films this year that didn't make this list? Oh, uh, from a visual effects perspective? Right. You know, I think Meg is such an interesting movie because it's a throwback movie and it's supposed to feel like a throwback movie. So like the visual effects feel like it's right for that kind of movie, right? It's like this, mm. it's this strange combination of like, it's supposed to feel like it was shot in the time in which it was made or shot in which it, it's portraying. And it feels like that. So there are certain sets where you're like, oh, that's a location and it would be real. And it feels like it's the location. And other times like, well, that would be a, 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 on, on, a, on a stage and it feels like it's on a stage. And I think it's David Fincher, like with every David Fincher movie, there's such attention to detail. That is just, to me, is what's really impressive with David Fincher. One of the things that's really impressive about David Fincher is like his attention to detail on every one of his movies. Sort of, that's one of the things that David Fincher is known for is like, doing it over and over again, a take until he feels he's got what he wants for that take. But he's the same way with the visuals. Like if you watch the movie Zodiac, there's a ton of visual effects that are seamless that he did to make it feel like it's the time period of the Zodiac killer, right? He literally did things on the set, like to augmented the set. So it felt like the set from, or the, you know, that was shot on location. So they changed the trees. So it was what the trees looked like in the seventies or whatever, you know, what all that stuff, like, so that kind of attention to detail, I think, in the Mank is, is also there. So it's fun to watch that for the visual effects side of it, to be like, oh, I wonder what, to, I wonder what they did here, because it, it has the feeling, the correct feeling. So it, and it, it's, it's very different from his other movies that he's done. But it's the same in his attention to detail. So like right. That's... And where the visual effects effort can really be to heighten what Fincher's looking for and really take into that extra step, which as many people have noted, Fincher is really concerned about those details. Yeah, I mean, he's really concerned about those details. So I, I think Mank is a film that I like to point out as something that's an unusual one that's like, that's on the list of things that are like, oh yeah, I didn't, that's a cool movie that, 
is super interesting to watch. Another thing that is happening more and more is that uh, animated films are trying to get up for best visual effects. And most recently, I think it was Kubo and the Two Strings got into the visual effects category. And it's very, con- that's very controversial. So like there's right. all this controversy surrounding the melding of these two sides. Like there was controversy surrounding the Lion King for the because city. the Lion King is a full CG movie. So in all right. of it, and it's like, by definition, that's an animated film, but it was in the visual effects category. And there was some talk of, should it be an animated film, not an animated film? There's, you know, like it's a blending of, of the world. So that going back to your first question, about like the commonalities between visual effects and animation. They're certainly in the categorization of the, of even the two aspects of filmmaking, there's a gray area that's being breached on both sides. Like, and it's fascinating to watch. So to see that happen. The last thing I'll say about Mank is that I think they've got enough nominations. I'm glad they didn't crowd out one of these films <laughs> and, and push their way into this category as well. Yeah. Ken, thanks so much for coming out today. This is great talking about this. Thank you. I really had fun talking about visual effects in this year. And uh, thanks for having me on the podcast. We'll see you again. Yeah. Halfway through our Oscar coverage, and I hope you're getting as much out of it as I am. Subscribing to the podcast is a great way to catch every episode. I really appreciate your feedback. You can send email comments to skid, S-K-I-D, at below the line, one word, dot biz. That's B-I-Z. Please rate us wherever you get your podcasts. It helps us reach new listeners. And new listeners, the best way to produce previous episodes is on our website, belowtheline.biz. More than 70 episodes available. At some point, we might have featured one of your favorite shows. If you're on Facebook, you can find photos and other behind-the-scenes materials at Podcast Below the Line. And finally, you can follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram. It's at Pod Below the Line. Thanks to Curtis Five for our music and John Juan for our logo. The logo is available on t-shirts, mugs, and stickers at redbubble.com. Once again, thanks for listening.